Morning, church. Great to see you. Welcome. I'm Greg Paris. We're so glad you're here today. And as Pastor Jeff was saying, please submit those questions. Uh, you asked for it. We're serious about this. I'm curious to know what questions you have. These are some that we thought of. And I'm even more interested to know what I'm going to say about it. So please get those questions in the next uh, week and a half or so. And we appreciate that. Looking forward to that series at Easter and the weeks following. We are in a series right now called Sojourner. We're talking about the life of Jesus as he moves inexorably toward Jerusalem, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And I know it's been meaningful to many of you. We've talked about Jesus and his closest relationships, how important those meaningful connections were to him. We also talked about Jesus making a major decision, the last decision he made to go into Jerusalem for the last time to fulfill his mission and the kind of person is required when we are at the crossroads of our lives. Last week we talked about Jesus and his enemies. There are enemies of God in the world and we don't want to be among them and what it means uh, to respond to those who seem to be enemies of God in the world. So today we want to uh, move now to the cross. This pivotal moment in history when Jesus submits himself for crucifixion and we want to consider the cross of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Mark's Gospel once again. We've been in Mark's Gospel this entire series. Chapter 15 today, I'm going to read the first 15 verses of Mark chapter 15. And if you have your Bible, I'll invite you to keep those Bibles open. We're going to kind of reference the rest of that chapter today as we work our way through the events leading up to the crucifixion. And I hope it's meaningful to you. Mark 15, our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so I'll invite you to do so as you're able. Beginning at verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, Pilate asked, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then? With the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, Pilate asked. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, may God inspire us today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Let me put on the screen one verse from Mark chapter 14, verse 50, just to give you some context with the life of Jesus, where it reads, then everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone deserted him and fled. They all forsook Jesus. He was all alone. Now, this is important to note that from this moment on in Jesus' life, he is by himself. He is completely and utterly alone. Someone said that the loneliest thing in the world is to die. 
And perhaps the loneliest death is to die alone. So all of the followers of Jesus, all of his disciples, they've all left. He is by himself. Now verse one of our text from Mark 15, it, it says in, in the early morning. Now let's, let's ask the question, what morning? This is on Friday morning of the Passover weekend. The last supper has occurred on Thursday night. He has gone from that dinner to Gethsemane to pray and where he's been betrayed and they've arrested him. He's been before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, uh, through the early hours of Friday morning and now they present him to Pilate. And it's probably the pre-dawn of Friday morning, four or five o'clock in the morning. And this is the setting now of this encounter with Pontius Pilate. And he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, it's an important question from Pilate's perspective. He's heard rumors that, that people are describing Jesus as the king of the Jews. But this is also an important question for Pilate to ask because of his worldview. And you need to understand the Roman worldview of the time. Romans actually had a, a pantheon of gods. They were, they were pagans. So they had hundreds and thousands of different gods that they worshipped. They were chief among them. But for them, they mixed their politics and their religion. So they worshipped their king, Caesar Augustus at the time, as a god. So he's not just king, he is a god king. So when you ask someone else if they're the king, this presumes all kinds of things. In America, it's hard for us to get our minds around this kind of worldview because we understand humanism. You know, people are just kind of self-interest without acknowledgement of God. But what we don't comprehend well is idolatry. And that's what the Romans were, idolaters, mixing their religion and their politics into the same person, Caesar Augustus. So to say that, to, to say that you're a god, that's one thing. That's no, actually no big deal because we have... Hundreds of gods. But to describe yourself as a king, that is a different matter. That violates all kinds of boundaries because only Caesar Augustus is, is king and only he can appoint others to be kings. So then we move from that question that Pilate receives the answer to. Jesus said, well, that's, it is as you say. I am the king of the Jews. You said it, brother. So now Pilate hears Jesus say it. And he, of course, this is the first encounter Pilate has personally with Jesus, and so he's learning who Jesus is as he goes in this encounter, and it's, uh, it's fascinating as it works its way into Pilate's mind and his consciousness and his emotions and so forth. It was the tradition then of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to release a prisoner, typically a political prisoner, from among the Jews on the Passover weekend. It was the way Pilate could ingratiate himself with the Jewish population because they hated him. They hated Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, because of his oppressive uh, presence and rule. And when Felix and Festus, the next Roman governors in succession, came to power, the Jews hated them as well. So Pontius Pilate now is taking this opportunity to kind of upgrade his public relations by releasing a prisoner. So the fickle crowd, emotion-driven crowd, now with plants from the Sanhedrin in the crowd, uh, encouraging them to ask for Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate now turns to the crowd and misinterprets what he believes their response will be, and he says, do you want me to release for you your king, the king of the Jews? And they say, no, 
We don't want you to release him. We'll take Barabbas. Him we want crucified. And Pilate is, is stunned by this. It kind of shocks him because he just assumed that they would want Jesus to be released. And he says, why would you want Barabbas released? This guy standing before me, he seems like a better candidate. He seems like a nice guy. I mean, what he, what's he done to deserve this kind of punishment? And they cry out all the louder, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And Pilate, Pilate now, you can imagine that he's starting to get nervous. He's starting to get anxious. He's getting, he's getting uh, uh, worried because he knows intuitively, he knows instinctively now that it's not right to put this guy to death. And yet that's what the crowd is demanding. And he feels the pressure of the crowd. He remembers less than a week earlier when Jesus came into Jerusalem for the last time, the triumphal entry. You know, palm branches are laid at his feet. Hosanna to the son of David. And so he knows that the crowd loves Jesus. And so he is completely shocked when they say crucify him. This troubled, this troubled uh, uh, mental state will follow Pilate all through the weekend. You'll remember one of the gospels says that when he, when he condemns Jesus to death, he washes his hands in front of everybody. Listen, he says, I'm not taking personal responsibility for this one. You are. You ask for it. This is what you get what you ask for. I'm washing my hands. He has, he has nightmares all weekend long. His wife gets involved. You shouldn't have done that. What have you done? And so it leaves Pilate in an emotional state. So he's shocked. Now note what's happening here, though. When the crowd asks for Barabbas instead of Jesus, note, note what's happening. Barabbas now has been exchanged for Jesus. A good man now is substituting for a bad man. The sinless Lamb of God is now going to be substituted for a murderer. Now, on the surface of that, you go, well, that was Barabbas' lucky day, right? I mean, he, he was condemned and deserved to die, and now he's been released and substituted by Jesus. And, and you say, well, that was Barabbas' best day. It was his luckiest day. And indeed, I must, he must have just been amazed at his good fortune. But if you'll stop and think about it, Barabbas isn't the first or the only person that Jesus has subbed in for. That's actually true for all of us, isn't it? We all deserve to die. You deserved to die. And I deserved to die. But Jesus took our place. This is an amazing thing. This is a prophetic prefigurement of all, all the things that God wants to do in our lives. He wants to take our place. What we deserve, Jesus took on our behalf. What, what, what we earned by our own life and rebellious nature toward God, Jesus subbed in, substituted in our place the death and the hell and the grave. And this is a wonderful thing. And not only has he taken our place because of our sinfulness, but he's elevated us. The Apostle Paul wrote this in the New Testament that we have, we have been given this lofty place as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, that we have an inheritance as kings and queens, incorruptible and undefiled, that fades not away. And it's because the deserving king, the son of God, the heir of eternity has taken our place. We deserved death and hell and punishment, but God has given us life through the death of the one and only Son of God, the only one, by the way, deserving of an inheritance of eternal glory.
How many of you glad that Jesus took our place? Aren't you happy that Jesus subbed in for us? Wow. Now in Mark 15, 15, it says that Pilate then released Jesus to be flogged and then to be crucified. This flogging or scourging was a horrific event. We don't want to pass by it lightly. The flogging was administered by Roman soldiers with a cat of nine tails. It was long leather strands that had on the end of these strands a bone or metal pressed into the leather. It was discovered by the Romans that if you lashed someone strapped to a post and lashed someone 40 lashes that it would often kill the victim. And so it was illegal to give someone 40 lashes with the cat of nine tails. So 39 maximum lashes, literally people were beaten to within an inch of their life. And Jesus was flogged in this way. The Romans discovered the value of oppressive brutality. You know, never waste an execution. The more dramatic and brutal the process of execution, the more benefit, political benefit you could gain from it and on the psychology of people who would witness some or part of, of this execution process and this is what's happening here. We then read that the Roman soldiers take Jesus after the scourging into the praetorium, this guardhouse, if you will, where they mock him, they beat him about the head and the face, they spit on him, they fashion a crown of thorns and place on his head, press it down on his head. They march him around this praetorium in this mocking honor. They put a purple robe on him and kneel down in front of him, mocking him until he f completes his journey around this course that they have set for him. They put his own clothes back on him and lead him out for crucifixion. For many uh, centuries, there was a Roman Catholic convent on what they believed was the original site of this praetorium. And scholars and other archaeologists actually mocked these nuns for thinking that they were located at the original site of this praetorium. And some years ago, the nuns insisted that the scholars and archaeologists bring their shovels and come in the basement and start digging, and they did. And guess what? They found, they found that this is actually the site of the Roman garrison where the praetorium was. The reason they knew it is the first thing they uncovered in the basement of this convent was the cobblestones that had been etched by the Romans, which you saw throughout the Roman Empire in that, in that period of history, so water could run off of the cobblestones so the shod horses wouldn't hydroplane uh, on, on the cobblestone. And they also found, if you will, this board game on the floor etched in the stone in the basement of this convent, this little squared off section where where human beings were used as pawns in this game and marched from one square to the next square. And you can see the sequence of events that happened to Jesus. I have a good friend who's been at this location many times, and he, he testifies to me that it is virtually impossible to stand there, stand in the very room, and look at this etching on the, on the stones without weeping. So he's never been there that he's not overcome with emotion himself and any other people who are in the room at the same time, everyone is weeping. He said in, in the Holy Land, it's possible to go to various locations and you have to imagine the events that unfold in that location. You have to use uh, that imagination to, to comprehend it. 
But he said, when you're standing there and you see these etchings on the floor, he said, you don't have to imagine anything. You know exactly what happened in that spot. Jesus is led to Golgotha, the place of the skull. He is offered an anesthetic. And he refuses it. This mixture of wine and myrrh, it's an anesthetic um, designed to deaden the senses, to, to, to be a painkiller, if you will. And Jesus refuses it. The reason that Rome offered the anesthetic, you think, oh, there's an act of mercy, you know, you're going to deaden the pain. But that wasn't their motive. Their motive was to deaden the pain. They knew if the person imbibed this anesthetic that it would prolong their life and therefore prolong their suffering and therefore prolong the demonstration of brutality. You know, never waste an execution. And so Jesus refuses this anesthetic. And there's a couple of reasons for that in his case. Number one, we have to remind ourselves Jesus is not there to die for himself. Jesus is there to die for us. He is going to drink the cup of suffering to the very last dregs. That is his intention. He is not there to avoid the pain, but to endure every moment of it. This is not an act of martyrdom, as you might categorize this kind of death. This, rather, is an act of heroic self-control. He is giving himself, submitting himself to the full to the full expression and, and full experience of the suffering for the sins of the world. The other reason Jesus refuses the anesthetic is because he knows he has to die that day. He has to die on Friday. Now, the Sabbath begins at 6 p.m. on Friday. This is early in the morning on Friday, and he knows he needs to be dead before Sabbath begins at 6 p.m., and so he refuses the anesthetic. Now, crucifixion could happen in several different ways. It was probably invented by the Romans, if not the Persians, just before them. Uh, to be crucified meant that you were hung on a, a tree or a crossbeam by either nails or ropes. In crucifixion, uh, nobody dies of the wounds. You don't bleed to death in crucifixion. You die of suffocation. You are asphyxiated. Uh, when you die on a cross, your chest cavity collapses down on your diaphragm and you cannot force your lungs open. So a person who's nailed or roped to a cross uh, suspended in that, that fashion, in that posture, cannot continue to breathe easily. And so a person has to pull themselves or push themselves up in order to get air in the lungs. Visualize a fish out of water just trying to get air. And so the victim would push or pull themselves up until exhaustion would capture them or the pain in their hands or feet and they would collapse down again. And then again, without being able to breathe, would try to pull themselves up. It was a horrible way to die. People blackened by the sun, begging for water, suffocating. Sometimes small little saddles or spikes would be placed in the vertical pole so that the victim would have a place to sit. This would prolong their lives, sometimes for days. It was a horrific, terrifying way to die. Oftentimes at night, 
the family or friends of the victims hanging on a cross, they would go to, to these places and actually break the legs of their loved ones to hasten their demise. They're unable to push themselves up to, to breathe. Now, talking about this, you know, is pretty gruesome, isn't it? I'm sorry for that. My concern is that we have a much too sterilized view of the cross, you know, sanitized for our protection. I just want you to know clearly, I want you to know what Jesus did for you. He didn't have to do that. He did it. You can hold your place there in Mark 15, and if you'll go back to the middle of your Bible to Psalm 22, I want to show you a very fascinating passage from the Psalms. This is a Psalm of David. Now, now mark, mark yourself chronologically. Jesus lived, Jesus lived in the first century. Now, you have to back up. King David lived 1,000 years B.C. So this is 1,000 years before Jesus lived on the earth, he wrote this psalm. Most of the psalms were written by King David, not all of them, but most of them, and most of them were in the form of songs. So he was a psalmist, and he would write these songs and then put them to music. And this is a psalm of David, Psalm 22, which he had written, put to music, and sent down to the temple for the worship team to start practicing. Let's sing this one on Sunday, boys. Look at verse 1. I'll put these words on the screen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? These are the very words that Jesus used from the cross. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Really? Can you imagine the worship team getting this? Reporting back to say, Your Majesty, we're glad to practice this song and sing it in worship this Sunday, but gosh, it's so gruesome. What does it mean? What is it even about? Can you hear David trying to explain it? Well, Look, I don't know exactly what it means. All I know is that when I come under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God speaks to me and I, I see a man being pierced. I see a man whose clothes are being gambled for, distributed. So I think it has something to do with Messiah, but I'm not sure. The poignancy for us in a moment like this is that David received this revelation, this, this very clear and graphic prophetic description of the crucifixion a thousand years before Jesus was alive. If you're a person who, who does not believe in the reliability of the scripture, you have to come to terms with passages like this. In fact, there are over 350 prophetic passages and other explanations found in the Old Testament that explicitly refer to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. There is no explanation for the interpretation of those prophetic words and occasions in the Old Testament unless you apply them to the life of Jesus. Coincidence, you say. You know, I mean, you have to rationalize that somehow. Well, I don't believe the Bible true. I don't believe the Bible reliable. But how is it that people a thousand years and hundreds of years and in some cases thousands of years before Jesus was even born actually can predict in intimate detail 
in a prophetic way. A description of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Yeah, something to think about. Mark 15, 25, it says that it was 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. 9 o'clock in the morning. That's interesting. The Bible would make note of the hour. 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, some of you are Bible scholars in the room today. How many of you, uh, is there anyone in the room who might know where else the New Testament explains that something happened at precisely 9 o'clock in the morning? Say it loud if you think you know it. It's 50 days later from the crucifixion, and it's the day of Pentecost. 120 men and women are in the upper room in Jerusalem, and what time is it? Nine o'clock in the morning. To the, to the hour, maybe to the minute. I like to think to the second. I th maybe to the second that the first nail is driven into Jesus. Nine o'clock in the morning. 50 days later, 9 o'clock in the morning, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit fills the upper room and fills those 120 men and women. And supernatural signs begin to manifest in their lives because of the presence of supernatural spirit. And they spill out into the, into the street and they begin to, to preach in languages they've never learned. And from there, great powers and demonstrations of God's power manifest through their lives and their witness. And from that day to this, we have seen the promulgation of the gospel disseminated uh, on every continent among every people in the world. It's an amazing thing. The darkest moment in, in history, 50 days later, now is enlightened by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to take the message of the sacrifice of Jesus to the whole world. It's awesome. I love the precision of it. Just, I just love that. I don't know if that does anything for you, but I love that. While Jesus is being crucified, some of these same religious leaders who conspired to have him put to death, now they're at the foot of the cross and they're mocking him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rise it back up in three days. How are you going to do that now, pal? You said that you, said that you were all that. Well, if you're all that, well, just come down off the cross. Come down off of the cross and I'll believe you. We'll believe then. Well, they wouldn't believe. But you do understand that they didn't understand what they were asking Come down off of that cross. You see, if Jesus had done that, it would have plunged the entire universe into chaos because the Son of God would have been acting in rebellion to the Father. And if the Son had acted in rebellion to the Father by coming off the cross, extricating himself from the cross, it would mean that all of us would remain doomed and damned. Thank God he stayed on. Thank God Jesus endured to the end. Bible says in verses 33 and 34 that there was a three-hour eclipse, darkness from noon till three o'clock, the most horrifying picture of Jesus in his entire life. This is a period of time when the scholars suggest that even God turned his back on Jesus. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. These are deep and mysterious theological concepts that Jesus actually not only endured the weight of your sins and mine, the sins of the world, but he became sin. Became sin in order to eradicate it. And that even God was unable to look upon his own son because he had become 
the putrid, destructive force of sin. This is the God-forsaken God, as it were, all alone. And then verses 37 and 39, we find two other amazing events. The Bible says that when Jesus breathed his last, that the veil of the temple, we know there was, there was shaking of the ground, there was an earthquake, there were the darkness in the sky, unusual phenomenon, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, understand what this veil is. When Moses led the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage into the Sinai desert and into the wilderness, God instructed Moses and the elders to build this tent. They called it the tabernacle. And this was, this was the meeting place with the people in God. This was the center of worship in the wilderness for the nation of Israel. And in this tabernacle, there was a, this big tent. There was an outer court, an inner court. There was a holy place inside the tent itself. And then the deepest recesses of of the, of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. Outer court, inner court, the holy place, and the Holy of Holies. This is where Moses actually placed the Ark of the Covenant, that wooden box that he had constructed with the elders to contain the Ten Commandments. The lid on the Ark of the Covenant had a mercy seat on it. When they consecrated the tabernacle in the wilderness, the glory of God, the Shekinah of God, actually filled the Holy of Holies. When they built the permanent temple in Jerusalem, same same format, same footprint, and it also contained outer, inner, the holy place, and the holy of holies, the most holy place. And the separation between the holy place, that room, the larger room, and the smaller holy of holies where God dwelt. This was the dwelling place of God. The glory of God dwelt in the holy of holies. I mean, only the high priest could go into the holy of holies. And that was after a much purification, much ritual, uh, much preparation. And so it was a very sacred and dangerous place to be because the presence of God was there. Now note, the separation between the holy and most holy place was this curtain, this veil, this very thickly materialed curtain, as thick as a man's wrist, and it hung between these two parts of the temple, and, and you didn't go, go around it. You didn't go through it. You didn't go under it. You couldn't go in there. But when Jesus breathed his last, follow it now, the veil of the temple, the hands of God now literally tears this, this curtain from top to bottom. And you understand the symbolism. God once and for all communicating to us that until this moment, all kinds of ritual, all kinds of sacrifice, all kinds of the shedding of blood of purified animals had to be sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. But now, once and for all, a sacrifice has been made that is sufficient for every sin of every person who will ever live. And now we have free access into the very presence of God. We don't have to jump any hoops. We don't have to say the words right. We don't have to sacrifice anymore because once and for all the sacrifice has been made and now we can boldly and confidently enter into the very presence of Almighty God, not based on our own merits, but based on the merits of Jesus Christ, clothed in his righteousness. Now in Jesus' name, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. You can pray in your name. Good luck with that. We pray in Jesus' name. And you enter into the place where God's glory resides. Wow. Verse 39, 
of Mark chapter 15 says that the centurion who supervised the execution of Jesus, when Jesus breathed his last, he's standing there and he watched Jesus die. And what he says is amazing. He simply says, surely this was the son of God. As it turns out, a Savior crucified is a Savior nonetheless. So the first convert, the first person to be born again through the shed blood of Jesus Christ was the man who put him to death. It's one of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible. If I was given the assignment to preach to the most incorrigible people in the world, if we could just, okay, get the worst human beings on the planet. These are the worst of the worst. And we'll just assemble them all and perish. You have to preach to them. This is the text I would use. Mark chapter 15, verse 39. Because if that centurion can be saved and forgiven, then anybody can be saved and forgiven. We read later in the text... When Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body, Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead. And he calls the centurion. He makes another appearance before Pilate. And he says, is Jesus really dead? And the centurion said, he's dead. I wonder if he said anything else to Pilate. He's dead and I believe in him. I believe that guy we just put to death is the son of God. Faith welled up in that man's heart. Won't it be great on testimony night in heaven when it's his turn? I'm looking forward to that. Testimony night in heaven. And now we have the man who supervised the crucifixion. You know how we'll respond? We'll all go, yay. Yay, buddy. Let's hear your story. And the reason we'll all celebrate that moment is because we'll all realize completely how it is that we're there. And what we'll realize for certain is that we're all there by the grace of God. Not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. And we are there by God's grace and grace alone. It is the gift of God, not the result of any of our works, lest any of us be boastful about that. We are there by God's grace and grace alone. And so when someone who's been a scoundrel his whole life up until the moment of his faith, like the guy who put Jesus to death, We'll celebrate that because we're all happy about grace and we'll wonder just how much grace was needed in that guy's life. Let's hear the story and we can celebrate God's goodness through his life and his faith. Amazing. Testimony night in heaven. (laughs) You going to be there? Hope you are. First convert was a Roman soldier. Joseph of Arimathea then goes to ask for the body of Jesus. And Joseph is to be greatly admired. This is a man of means. He's a wealthy man. He he has connections. He boldly, the, the word in the text is boldly goes to Pilate. I'd like to have the body. When Pilate confirms the death of Jesus, he grants permission to Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph takes him down from the cross. I don't know if he personally, physically removed him from the cross, but certainly his associates did. Joseph wraps him in a cloth 
because it's nearing 6 p.m. We need to get this boy buried before 6 p.m. He wraps him in a cloth and puts him in his own tomb, a very expensive location. There's much we could say about Joseph of Arimathea. I want to tell you this. I've been telling everyone all weekend. Two nights ago, I had a dream. I was thinking about Joseph of Arimathea. You know, a guy who is self-aware, he knows who he is. He knows what is the right thing to do. And he does it. He uses his influence. He uses his, his assets, his wealth to advance kingdom initiatives. He's a good guy. I had this dream two nights ago, and, and I've never had a dream like this, but in my dream, I share it with you because I'm puzzled by it, but in my dream, a man walked up to me, and I didn't know who he was, but he walked up to me, and he gave, he gave us a million and a half dollars. And he said, this will come in handy for what God's calling you to do. Joseph of Arimathea did what was needed when it was needed. That's a strong thing, friends. So Jesus is buried before 6 p.m. on Friday night, and it's a temporary burial. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they note the location of the gravesite, and they will come back on Sunday at the conclusion of Sabbath to anoint the body for its permanent burial. And so Jesus is placed in a tomb. The stone rolled in front of that tomb late in the afternoon on Friday. He's in the tomb all day Saturday until Sunday morning. And at some point, early Sunday morning, resurrection occurs and he comes on out of there. Now, as we count time, that's, that's not quite three full days. But in Hebrew reckoning, he's in the grave Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday. Part of Friday, all day Saturday, part of Sunday. And in the Hebrew reckoning, therefore, three days three days in the tomb. That's how the chronology works. When I was growing up, I was in a little church that sang the old hymns every week. And one of the hymns that we sang every week was the old rugged cross. I, uh, I want to share those lyrics with you as we conclude today. Can we make it a matter of prayer? Can we absorb the work of the cross and its meaning to us as we hear these words? Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. The old rugged cross so stained by blood divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For t'was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true its shame and reproach gladly bear, then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll see. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross 
till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Now, while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, let me just ask today, is there anyone in the room and you've not settled in your own heart your relationship with God made possible through the cross of Jesus Christ? You can do that today. This can be your day. This is your moment when you finally make your peace with God. You can do that with a simple prayer. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin, my failure, the things I've done wrong. Thank you for giving your life as a substitute for my punishment. I receive the gift you offer me. If that's the need in your life today and you're ready to take that step and I encourage you to do it, would you just lift your hand where you're sitting right now today? Just lift it up and say, yes, that's a step I need to take. Anyone in the room like that? Yeah, I see that hand. Thank you, young man. Anyone else? Now, no one prays alone. Let's all pray together out loud in support of those needing to take this step today. You ready? After me, dear Lord Jesus, Forgive me of my sins. For everything I've done wrong, I'm sorry. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me, for giving your life as a substitute for my sin. I receive you, Lord, into my life. I want to live for you. I want to serve you. I want to know you. Help me from this day forward by the power of your Spirit to live a life that honors you. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now everyone, let's celebrate what people have just done. Isn't that good? Amen. Good for you. Yeah, it's good. Good for you. Stand with us now as we sing.